Hi there everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob, and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. Uh, before we get going today, I uh, just wanted to say, hey everyone, welcome back. Thank you for being patient while we were off over Christmas. Happy New Year to all of you. Happy New Year to Lizzie. Happy New Year, Rob. Um, I have been sort of itching over Christmas to get back in front of the microphone and uh, talk about this because yeah. being without it has made me realise how much I enjoy doing this and how much I yeah. still enjoy watching Game of Thrones and talking about it. <laughs> it's a good time. And if you want to, you can find us on Twitter or Etsy. Uh, both of our pages uh, on those websites can be found by searching for at Longest Night GOT. Uh, at Longest Night GOT. Our title music uh, provided by a friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas, and you can find all of his available work in the show notes. And it's not just us who's returning this week. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 7, of Game of Thrones entitled The Broken Man. It was written by Brian Cogman and directed by Mark Mylod. It was first broadcast on the 5th of June 2016 to an audience of 7.8 million people. Uh, Lizzie, you must have recognised the name there in the in the credits, in the director's chair. I did, I definitely did. I pointed it out to you once, I think. Yes, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, hoping you'd uh, hoping you'd pick up on it this week as well. Um, we just can't get away from Succession, can we? <laughs> we can't. Never can. But before he was doing stuff on Succession, Mark Mylod was directing uh, The Broken Man. Uh, what would you make of it? What do you make of it? It's another mostly solid episode from this season, I think. I say mostly. There's one real weak point that we've both discussed privately and we'll we'll get to that but yeah aside from that mm. you have a, a very welcome return you have well, well you have a couple of welcome returns I feel like we've not really seen much of the other character I'm thinking of and yeah. they get a chance to shine in this episode um, yeah I can't really fault this episode much aside from that one thing but I like that you have these sort of late season episodes where you're not quite, you're not in the full climax, but they're building to that point and all the pieces are being put in place. And I yeah. think this is one of the best examples of that. Yeah, um, I actually really, really like this episode up until the mm. point that, yes, uh, we've both privately talked about it. Um, yeah. All I'll say is that it's not something that happens in Westeros. Um, no. It's something that happens across the Narrow Sea. Um, I love the return of natural surroundings in this episode and all the greenery yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the pastoral uh, all the pastoral stuff. I love all mm. the emphasis on revenge and on broken and exhausted people trying to heal and yep. find a new path. I love that the ghosts of the War of Five Kings still linger in the air. Like, you can't really escape it no matter where you turn in this episode. There's always mm -hmm. an effect of the War of Five Kings somewhere hovering around in the background, which means that even though it's not not a central issue in the plot anymore, it is still a big, like I say, a big ghost that hangs over quite a lot of these characters. But yeah, the the uh, just to kind of stop doing, you know... <laughs> talent show result reveals on people um <laughs> i'm not keen on the bravo stuff really at all nah, me neither um it's yeah it's the start of something uh which i'm not keen on and we'll talk about that more in in the weeks ahead i served under your uncle at castle black lady liana he was also a great warrior and an honorable man i was his steward in fact i, I think we've had enough small talk why are you here stannis baratheon garrisoned at Castle Black before he marched on Winterfell and was killed. He showed me the letter you wrote to him when he petitioned for men. It said... I remember what it said. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. Rob is gone, but House Stark is not, and it needs your support now more than ever. In the north, after securing the allegiance of the Wildlings, Jon, Sansa and Davos depart for several castles 
in the north in order to add more fighting men to their army. And first they meet with Lady Lyanna Mormont, who is a 10-year-old girl in charge at Bear Island, which is where all the Mormonts are from, and mm-hmm. she pledges 62 men to their cause. They then meet with Lord Glover, who refuses to join them in their fight, citing Rob Stark's mistakes during the War of Five Kings as his reason for not providing any support. And sensing that they are running out of time and with John wanting to press ahead before the weather turns on them, Sansa writes an urgent letter to an as-of-yet-unknown party. Uh, so, it's John and Sansa's northern tour this yeah. week. Um, <laughs> what do you make of all the, the hopping around that they did this week? I mean, I feel like we have to headline this with some praise for Liana Mormon. Yeah, Bella Ramsey is the actress's she's, name. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> she's so good in this. Um, <laughs> like, how she completely dismisses the small talk and and, like... I think the connection with Davos especially, it's very reminiscent of his relationship with Shireen. I think that's why he had that... He had an obvious respect for her, where I think with Sansa and Jon, there was that... I mean, they were trying to convince her to join their cause, but there was still that hint of bemusement. It's like, is this who we're really trying to convince, a 10-year-old girl? And Davos sort of knows. He's like... Yeah, I, well, a 10-year-old girl could have that sort of power. Of course, why not? Yeah, it's how things end up in this world. Exactly, like, yeah. With lines of succession and such. Yeah, and and like um, Davos says, if, if the men are as fierce as you, then the Boltons don't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, he manages to be... I don't know, he manages to take on the role of a guardian and a parent, but without being patronising, if you know mm, what I mean. He puts exactly, on the voice yeah. that you put on for children, but it's not It's not patronising. Um, not at all. The thing I actually quite like about John and Sansa and Davos's uh, Northern Tour, Davos is the support act, I suppose, mm. um, is <laughs> that even though they have three scenes that are basically the same, all of them have a slightly different flavour. That's true, yeah. And... All of them are... I think, it, I think it's just the fact that the variables change ever so slightly and it means that the dynamic and relationships between each character, um, it just means that each scene can have a slightly different feel. Like, you know, you have the first one where the wildlings have sworn to John anyway and they sort of owe him their lives. Yeah, And yeah. so they're reminded of that and then... They form the alliance and then they go to the Mormonts who are sort of detached. I mean, Bear Island is like off the coast of Westeros. It's um, yeah, quite high yeah. up, but to the if you were to look at it straight on a map, it's like up and slightly to the left, uh, okay. south of the wall, but out in the sea. Um, but they have no real prior connection to the Starks. They don't really have much of a stake in northern politics because they're offshore, but they understand that I think they just understand a good peop- a good person when a good person stands in front of them. And then you get to the stuff with Lord Glover and there's someone who, again, as I was saying before about these ghosts of the War of Five Kings, this is a guy yeah. who does not want to give up anything more to like another war. He's tired of fighting. He's exhausted. Uh, he's lost members of his family. Mm-hmm. The Boltons actually helped him take the castle back when the War of Five Kings was over. And there's this pretty sobering line that he delivers um, with the House Stark is is dead. Like, whatever it stood for, it's all a bit ramshackle now. And it's Ned Stark's bastard son and his oldest daughter. Just Mm. kind of without the castle friends with a bunch of wildlings it's you know it's a hard sell and so um i mean i take it you spotted did you spot who that was lord um no go on it's uh tim mckinney of black adder and a few other things oh Um, well it felt his thing i've not actually seen black adder ah okay that'll be why you didn't recognize him then (laughs) yes that'll be our next podcast but yeah Yes, uh, I think I imagine Sarah Hughes would have picked him out as a random Brit of the week in her in her review. Well, this there was, is uh, I mean, another random Brit of the week. To be fair, this is a good episode for random Brits. 
Yes, um, lots of uh, lots of one-time appearance characters and uh, yeah, and characters returning for the first time in a long time. They could be considered uh, random Brits. All these disparate en- disparate edges of the story being brought back into a, a central central plot. Um, mm. The one thing about this, though. Um, that struck me as quite interesting is that it's nice to see John in a leadership position away from the Night's Watch. This is the first time he's been a leader with Stark clothes on his back as opposed to the Night's Watch uniform. That's true, but it also, I think, displays quite well some of his weaknesses in that... Definitely, yeah. He's not, like... I feel like Davos is a much better communicator than he is. Hmm. He's not someone, like, if he was doing an apprentice task, you wouldn't get him to do the pitch, let's say. Definitely not. No, I think Davos would definitely need to help. He's much better at the pep talks than than John is, I think. Yeah, and it shows his worth in that, um, you know, his his relationship with Stannis, let's say. Because, you know, Stannis, I don't, again, I don't think of someone as a communicator. But... um, yeah, it's. Um, I do think they they balance each other out really nicely, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to more of this. Even though, you know, given the ending of the scene with that, you know, that little fight breaking out and Davos having to go and split it up, yeah, could be interesting to see where that's going. And obviously, Sansa writing the letter, and there is that question of who is she writing the letter to. Well, I want to talk about Sansa, actually, because hmm. she... I think she goes through a lot in this episode. Um, yeah, yeah. She is reminded of past abuses and past marriages that she's had to mm-hmm. endure. And it just feels a little bit like Sansa's like, I'm just sick of this. Like, I'm sick of all of this. I'm, I think this is the moment where she decides to... Well, we clearly see it. She decides to take actions into her own hands. Yeah, and absolutely. I think she's a bit tired of the going from house to house in the north, like trying to put things together and fit the army together. And who do you think she's written the letter to? And what do you think the content of the letter is? Ooh, well, there's a couple of people. Because I know there's the Blackfish, but I know that also Brienne has been sent there already. Um, the only reason I could think of for that is maybe she thinks a direct approach might be better than sending, you know, an envoy. Yeah. Um, the other one I can think of is maybe Littlefinger, because I feel like Littlefinger kind of owes her. Mm-hmm. If, uh, okay. you know, having, having royally fucked her over before. Um... Mm. Because, uh, I mean, there's also, if you you go all the way back to season two, there's her relationship with the Hound, but she'd have to know where he was. And, you know, for all she knows, he's probably dead somewhere. So mm. not that. So, yeah, my my two main thoughts are either prob- probably Littlefinger, but also maybe the Blackfish. Okay, yeah. All right, so I think that's a good 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 question mark to leave it on. Do you remember the way you smirked at me when my grandson and granddaughter were dragged off to their cells? I do. I'll never forget it. You love your granddaughter. I love my son. It's the only truth I know. We must defend them. I'm leaving this wretched city as fast as I can before that shoeless zealot throws me into one of his cells. If you're half as bright as you think you are, you'll find a way out of here too. Never. I'll never leave my son. In King's Landing, the High Sparrow visits Marjorie and encourages her to bring Lady Olena into the Light of the Seven, implying that Olena's safety can't be guaranteed. Otherwise, Marjorie meets with Olena and instead encourages her to return to Highgarden. And during this talk, Marjorie slips a piece of paper into her grandmother's hand. The piece of paper is revealed to be a drawing of a rose, indicating that Marjorie is still loyal to the Tyrell family, despite her exterior, and Olena agrees to leave the capital. Uh, Before she can depart, Cersei meets with her, asking for support against the Faith and the Sparrows, and Olena remarks to Cersei that they've already lost, and she blames Cersei entirely for the High Sparrows' apparent victory uh, in her eyes. 
Um, only two or three short scenes in King's Landing this week, but all of the content is pretty solid. I think Lady Olena probably gets MVP for King's Landing this week, where she gives Cersei a good dressing down. But what what, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah, Lady Olena definitely gets MVP for King's Landing. Um, it's one of those things where it's a welcome dressing down for Cersei, but also you do feel bad for Cersei. Because she's not, you can tell she's not looking to shake those comments off. I think she's very much accepting, like, yeah, this is kind of my fuck up and I have to own this. But I also don't know what to do about it because my own son has just given himself to the enemy. So, yeah. And and so she's in a position where she has to look Lady Olena in the eyes and say, like, look, I need your help. Otherwise, well... You know, neither... Well, I don't get my son back and you don't get your grandchildren back. And it's kind of... It's quite depressing when Lady Alina turns around and says, no, you know what? It's not worth it. You you stay on and fight. Do what you want. I'm going to go and leave King's Landing because look at what it's brought me. It's brought me nothing but trouble. Yeah, I think Lady Hidi's facial acting is um, quite, a, a, quite a crucial point in yeah, this yeah. scene because... They they make the decision while Lady Elena is talking. You'd expect them to maybe stay on Diana Riggs' face, mm. and while she's delivering all of these insults, like uh, you know, wonder if you're the worst person I've ever met. You're truly vile. She calls the High Sparrow a shoeless zealot. Um, <laughs> but they they cut back to Cersei for a second, and mm. I was watching Lena Headey's performance very closely, and she just swallows a couple of times. And yeah. breathes in and out, and it's like, yeah, okay, I can't really, you know, I don't really have a leg to stand on in terms of defending myself here. She isn't wrong no. about no. anything that she's saying. And so, yeah, I think that maybe this is a point for Cersei where she's having to look within for a second. It's not a, a low point like it was at the end of season five after the Walk of Atonement. This is a different kind of low where she's admitted that she's wrong. She won't ever admit that to somebody else i don't think not publicly and not i mean she kind of does in this episode where she goes to apologize and say that we need each other but internally i think she has kind of accepted that her current approach and her previous approach has not it not only has it not worked but it's also ended up with the high sparrow being allowed to worm his way to the top of whichever tree they're all fighting for yeah it's a humbling rather than a humiliation yeah, humbling is a, is a good a good good way of putting it. So the scene with Marjorie, um, I guess we've always kind of known that all of the the act that she's been putting on this season has been convincing for the High Sparrow, but we haven't been convinced, if you mm. know what I mean, because we've seen yeah, her yeah. scene with Loras where she's behind closed doors and she's saying like, "Oh, you know, don't give in, stay with us," you know, just a little longer, and then she's out there going, "Oh," and. I've recited all these book passages from whatever text it is that you're asking me to read, and then yeah, we yeah. now see it for sure where she slips a piece of paper into Lady Elena's hand, and then during their embrace, Marjorie takes the moment where Septurinella is not looking just to kind of allow her face to crack and to maybe let a, a slight tear roll down the cheek and to hold it together just for a second. But, mm. you know, she knows that she'll make sure that Lady Elena's safe first, which is the right thing to do she's protecting her family she knows that the high sparrow's got it well he's not going to stop with what he's currently got this is the thing with the high sparrow that we've talked about where he's a massive hypocrite and he knows that he's a massive hypocrite because he's executed this plan very perfectly and it's his plan to seize power to overthrow the empire as he said a few exactly. episodes ago i was going to say if anybody can play the game better than marjorie it's the high sparrow your ironborn theon i know you've had some bad years Bad years. I'm tired of watching you cower like a beat dog. Drink the goddamn ale. Now listen to me. I need you. The real Theon Greyjoy, not this ratchet pretender. Can you find him for me? Drink. You escaped, you hear me? You got away and you're never going back. We'll get justice for you. If I got justice, my burnt body would hang over the gates of Winterfell. Fuck justice, then we'll get revenge. Drink. In Volantis, Theon and Yara stop over, and while drinking in a pub slash 
brothel, Yara encourages Theon to regain his confidence and come back to himself, insisting that they will retake the Iron Islands from Euron, and Yara then reveals that they are journeying to Slaver's Bay to meet with Daenerys and to try to secure an alliance with her. Another another short scene, but I think there's a lot of substance to this, and I like where it leaves off. What What, what about you? It's a real mixed bag, I think, this. Um, some good. I like that it's kind of revealed that Yara is, you know, possibly lesbian, possibly bi, possibly pan, or possibly this is just something that runs through the Greyjoy blood, where, you know, it used to, it's like what Theon used to be like in, in Winterfell in season one. Yes, and yeah. on the ship in season two. They're just... Randy isn't the right word, but they're... They're amorous, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I like that. Um, I think you know Yara herself it puts in a really you know convincing performance. But I guess my problem kind of comes with how she convinces Theon to come around. How she asks for the old Theon Greyjoy, so to speak, and that um, she does that thing where she's like, okay, she's forcing him to drink. Okay, that's a bad start. And she's doing the whole, like, you're ironborn, I know you've had some bad years, uh, mm. and then, you know, if you're really broken, then you should just slit your wrists. That's not great advice. I feel like that, it might help temporarily, that sort of man up, pull yourself together um, sort of spiel, but I don't think it's a long-term solution to this problem of, you know... Um, the abuse that Theon's been through, not, maybe not just with Ramsay, you know, going all the way back to Balon Greyjoy, how he was never really taken seriously. And, mm. yeah, um, I'm I'm on a tangent here, but I just feel like as much as the return of Theon as Theon would be very welcome, it does seem a little bit like, but aren't we beyond that point? He's too far gone, surely. Given everything he's been through, I don't think it's wise to simply say, oh, just brush it off, you know. It's it's nothing. You, you're better than that. You're Theon Greyjoy. When he he is still Theon Greyjoy, but he's a very different Theon Greyjoy. Well, for me, yeah, she essentially just bullies him into being better again. I will leave yeah, the yeah. question of whether he's actually better again. I will leave that to future episodes. <laughs> but what I will say is that, yeah, it's very uncomfortable to watch Yara deal with Theon in this way. But I also think yeah. to myself, like, would Yara deal with him in any other way? Like, That's isn't true. this just That's how true. they deal with trauma in Westeros? They just kind of go, fuck it, forget about it, fight another war. Like, you know, so there's that part of it where I'm sort of like, yeah pretty uncomfortable i wouldn't tell someone to deal with themselves in this way if they suffered the trauma that theon's gone through and it, it's something that theon even says himself where she says so you've had a few bad years and he goes a few bad years <laughs> yeah yeah um so it's something that he recognizes himself but you know i think yara is tough love personified um and as much as it is not the way I would deal with things. I think it's just the way that Yara's been taught to deal with problems like this, which is just to drink them away and fake it till you make it and yeah, all it's that kind sort of, of stuff. I, I get that. It's kind of their relationship. So, like, going back yeah. to season two, I think it is, when um, Yara arrives at Winterfell and mm. Theon's expecting, like, this big hero's welcome and he's just getting, oh, so you took over Winterfell then. All right, <laughs> fuck you. Um, it's just that it's that sibling relationship where yeah, I don't know. There's not there's there's it's cordial but not warm. Yeah, she's the older sister that's always felt like the younger brother is a bit annoying, and obviously they didn't really grow up together either because between the ages of like eight and eighteen, mm. Theon was at Winterfell, so they haven't got the they've got a few experiences from when they were very young, but there's still this dynamic to their relationship where it's Yara's older and therefore she knows better and Theon mm. is younger and therefore needs more guidance and this is just that is kind of caught in microcosm my favourite bit of the scene is the sort of the, I, I don't really know of the the way to describe it but the shot that comes from above Theon's head 
and then finishes underneath his chin while the uh, Ironborn theme plays underneath it. That's that's quite a cool dramatic moment. As I said, I will leave the question of whether Theon is back, inverted commas, uh, to future episodes. Because okay. I, like, recovery is not like as simple as just getting bullied by your sister and then being fine again, is it? So, No, we've had this discussion yeah. before with Sansa. It's not just a case of you get revenge on the person who did it and everything's dandy. It's... Yeah, but again, this is a fictional show in a fictional universe where a lot of fictional shit happens. Um, so yeah, I've come to expect it at this point. We didn't know you were coming because you didn't set a proper perimeter. You just allowed 8,000 men to approach unchallenged. Good thing we're friends or we'd be fucking you in the ass right now. Have Lord Edmure bathed and fed. Whoa, whoa. We'll will do. Edmure. He's a prisoner of House Frey. Only a fool makes threats he's not prepared to carry out. Well, let's say I threatened to hit you unless you shut your mouth, but you kept talking. What do you think I'd do? I don't give a rough. At River Run, Jamie and Bronn lead the Lannister army where they encounter a siege situation between the Tully and Frey armies, and the Freys have set up a small perimeter and are threatening to execute Lord Edmure Tully, but it's a threat that they don't carry out, and Jamie, who is irritated by the Freys' incompetence, takes full charge of the siege, and he parlays with Brynden Tully, the Blackfish, returning after about three seasons, who isn't intimidated by Jamie's threats and declares that they have enough provisions to last for two years, daring Jamie to take the castle by force um some cool stuff at river run this week I, I i like the stuff at river run this week it's um just to give you a little bit of uh backstory info if you will um this mm-hmm. is actually a something that they've lifted out of the books this is um all right this, okay this little bit they've found a place for it in jamie's storyline so this is this little bit is uh taken taken from the books with jamie over the next couple of episodes I'll, um, I'll have to look up the trivia on this on IMDb because it'll be full of, in the books, this happened, but in the television show. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's a television show we're talking about. Who cares? But, yeah, no, I, I really like this stuff. I I love the Blackfish. I'm He's a very welcome return. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that he is also, by bringing him back, as much as he delivers a great performance, I also think it's this war of five kings ghost kind of hanging around this scene this is where i think like the smell of war of five kings ghosts starts Mm. to really hum uh, and really get in your nose because like this is like the last petty squabble for territory in the riverlands the war of five kings destroyed the riverlands completely and this is like the last little bit of land that people are left to argue over and left to fight over, mm. and left to squabble over, and it's just the phrase shouting at a, like this really pathetic siege that literally anybody could, could have come and destroyed and broken up, while the blackfish just sort of stands on a wall going, fine then, kill him, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> It's like yeah. this is what it's all kind of been reduced to, arguing over a castle in the middle of nowhere, um, just because... <laughs> yeah, it's like not a particularly strong looking castle either. It looked like I don't know, it came from the Camelot theme park. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a I mean it's a cool design on the castle, but I don't know how important it is strategically, really. Mm, I mean it, no. it, it's it's over a river, I suppose, but that's about it, I think. But yeah, this yeah. is what it is. And like one thing I did put in my notes is that the this episode has some focus on like beautiful, lush, green pastoral landscapes full of, you know, blooming trees. And you go to this, it looks like you're in a scrapyard or something. It's all like grey and the grass is dead and muddy and there's no colour and you can see your breath. And it just, like you say, it's, it's like, is this really worth fighting over? Well, that's something that comes back to what Cersei said in the previous episode, which is like, just go and take the castle because it's ours. Just, yeah. it's ours. Just go and take it back. <laughs> and it's it's like a personal thing. It's like, oh, fuck it. What else have you got to do? Just go and take the castle. It's ours. Just 
Yeah, bring it back. I want it. Yeah, um, what are you going to do? Tell Ofcom? Like, there's uh, well, nothing, that, exactly. there's nothing anybody can do. It, it might be yours, but the fact is, somebody else has taken it, and they're not going to give it up particularly easy. No, um, although it is a great excuse to get Nikolai Costawaldo and Clive Russell together to do oh, yes. a, a good a good parlay on the on the drawbridge there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think this scene is blocked tremendously. Where over the course of the scene, the blackfish moves to the other side of Jamie, yeah, as if to yeah. say, "I don't even need to stand in between you and the castle." I'm just gonna I'm gonna pull your focus away. I'm gonna walk around you. I'm gonna walk away from you. You're right, uh, yeah. Yeah. I just I just think it's superb and then like you get the line where it's well, have you got two years? Can you last two years? Because we can. And exactly. what looked like a simple situation for the Lannisters about five minutes beforehand, where they've got an army of about eight, nine thousand people turning up to take this castle, mm, suddenly doesn't look so simple because it's quite a high castle to defend. Uh, it's not going to be too difficult to defend because, as the Blackfish says, hundreds of hours will die, but thousands of yours will go first, basically. Mm-hmm. So you'll lose far more men than we will trying to attack this castle. So those are your odds, King Slayer. And so Jamie, after asserting command over the phrase, gets slapped down a little bit by the Blackfish. And it's just great watching two actors do some great stuff. In a cool yeah, location. And it feels necessary because there was, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it was a bit weird a couple of weeks ago when it's like Jamie facing off with uh, the High Sparrow. And it's like, who the hell am I supposed to cheer for here? It's like you've got one rich aristocrat's chosen boy versus one religious zealot. I don't think, like, none of you are particularly great. I don't want to side with either of you. Whereas here you've got, Jamie, who's, as you say, he's been told, take this castle back because it's ours. So he's just rocked up and said, hey, we're taking this. And the person who grew up in it, it's it's his home. He was born there and he says he's ready to die there. He's sort of facing off with Jamie, who says, hey, this is my castle. And he says, no, it's not. It's ours now. Go away. He's thinking... Yeah, no, he's right. The Blackfish is right. Why are you here? You've just rocked up and suddenly you're... Well, you're coming here with your army and your swords, and what, you're going to kick me out? You're going to kill all of us? You're going to kill my nephew? If you want to kill my nephew, do it. I'm staring right at him. I'm telling you, you can kill him if you want. Hmm. And that's great. We've never seen this in this show. That kind of... Hmm. Like, I, I don't need this feudal bullshit you're throwing at me because what's the worst you can do yeah it makes you think like you know I think the blackfish is the oldest character involved in a I wouldn't say this is a combat situation but a a bit of a conflict and so he's been at war the longest yeah Yeah, in this episode it was probably like Tywin or Balin, maybe, but yeah. Sorry, I, I, I do just mean in this episode. But he's oh, the yeah, one who's this, been yeah. at war. Yeah. Out of the characters in this episode, he's the one that's been at war the longest. Hmm. And I was talking in this episode. Obviously, this comes more through with uh, the stuff in the Riverlands this week. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think Theon is another one too, and John is another one, and Sansa is another one, and. Now the Blackfish and even Jamie to an extent. It's all these people that have been scarred by physically, mentally, psychologically on their bodies. They've been scarred and they've been changed by mm. everything that happened because of the War of Five Kings. Yeah. And here's the Blackfish who's lived through it all and Jamie who lost a hand because of it being told to enter back into this war, both in this position where they're sort of like, Jamie's like, look, come on, just just give us the castle, for God's sake. You know, we can do it all bloodlessly. Just let me take the castle and go home. I'll and be the, your friend. Yeah, I'll be your friend. Oh, you're mean. Leave town. <laughs> um, and, yes, you'll find I can be very persuasive. Um, and the blackfish is sort of like... I'm very old and I'm very bored of this. Sieges are very dull. 
I came mm. down to meet you because I want something exciting to happen in my day. Thought I'd yeah. get the measure of you. And then even just and then even he just says, oh, I'm pretty disappointed though, to be honest. And it's like everyone's just sort of looking at each other like, I'm I'm tired, man. Like, I'm bored. Like, just just go away. Like we'll we'll stay in our castle for two years. Just yeah. you know, leave, please. Like, just leave us alone. You can cut my nephew's throat, whatever. Am I bluffing? Who knows? Who even cares? And I like this kind of weary stubbornness on the face of the blackfish throughout the whole, <laughs> the whole episode when, yeah, um, yeah. whenever he shows up. It's like, I'm joking, but uh, not really, but am I? I am, but am I? But not yeah. really. It's, Trying um, to make some fun out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it, because what else can you do? But I think it is that expectation that Jamie sort of arrived expecting this to be over in a matter of minutes. Mm. And I think it's... The Blackfish recognises that lack of respect as in what you've, you thought I would just give the keys over to you. Hmm. No, it's not going to be like that because, well, as he says, he has provisions and he has enough men. Do you have that? Are you willing to wait here for two years? Then, you know, you do that if you want, but so will we. You're Westerosi. What are you doing? I want to book passage home. <laughs> Can't afford it. Where'd you steal this from? What do you care? <laughs> Leave in two days. You can have a hammock in steerage. I want a cabin. And we'll leave at dawn. See you at sunrise. In Bravos, Arya secures passage back to Westeros from a ship captain, but is then attacked by the Waif, disguised as an elderly woman. The Waif stabs Arya twice, but Arya manages to break free and she jumps into a canal uh, in order to escape. And critically wounded, Arya then stumbles through the streets of Bravos while members of the public sort of stare at her, but don't really try to help either. Um, I don't, don't like the stuff in Bravos this week. Uh... What about you? Uh, no, me neither. No, I, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't like it. Um, why, why, why don't you? Why don't you? I'm curious to see if your reasons are different to mine. Um, the first part with her throwing money at the shipmen fell out of place, given that she's supposed to be on the run from a faceless woman determined to kill her. But the stabbing part itself felt like an unnecessary cliffhanger in an episode that was already full of them and um as much as this is a very like moany audience thing i don't believe that anything will come of this faria i like i definitely don't believe that she'll die let's say it mm. just seems on it, it's one of those things where it seems unnecessary but also like the writers have pinned themselves into a corner where they've got to resolve this storyline somehow where, you know, the the waif has been told by Jack and Hagar, you know, if you want to kill her, that's fine, but go easy on her. So you expect that to happen. It's, it's Chekhov so-and-so. And it's obviously going to come up at some point. So you have to manage it somehow, whether that's this or, you know, one last showdown between the two of them and... Arya comes out on top with Needle. I don't know, but... Just this... This didn't... I think the another problem as well... It's kind of a... You know, because how... Um, Sandor scenes with... Um, what's it called? Sorry, I've got his name here. Oh, well, the character's name is Brother Ray. Brother Ray, thank you. Uh, yeah. So their scenes together, they're sort of split up between um, this stuff in Bravos, where one of them is the, the Brotherhood Without Banners arriving and sort of the veiled threats that come with it. And then the next one is um, Sandor chopping some wood and he goes and finds, you know, Brother Ray and the rest of the commune dead. I think it maybe doesn't help that this scene sat in the middle of those two. Yeah, the end of the episode feels a bit bumpy to me, structurally. It really does, yeah. The way they've sequenced the uh, the scenes. 
feels a little strange to me. I didn't know if it was that so much as they didn't want to stretch this um, Sandor storyline across two episodes, which it very well could have done. Mm. You could have given us a lot more backstory between, like, like, who is Brother Ray? Where did he come from? What were his beliefs? But they had to cram it all into this one episode. Mm. But they also, like, they didn't want the, the killing to happen you know, one scene to the next. So they had to have something to break it up. Yeah, I think that maybe they always wanted to end the episode with the hound picking the axe up because then it frames the episode. Yeah, um, of course. And, you have, and it bookends it. So that, you know, the hound starts with, you know, trying to pursue a more peaceful life and then it ends up with him following his following his heart, which is towards revenge. Um, yeah. So they needed... But I think that without this scene in Bravos, the episode comes up slightly short, and so they thought, uh, what can we do like to raise the stakes a little bit? And so mm. you end up with this profoundly ridiculous situation where, yeah, I'm probably just going to end up repeating what you've said, but like, I as being all loud and smug when she's supposed to be hiding yeah. from invisible assassins and i don't i don't like being all nitpicky because that's not the way i watch tv but like no it's a valid question yeah it just doesn't feel consistent with where we were last week which makes yeah, me think like, that it was a late decision it's like where did this. she get that money i think i think even if she was just kind of sneaking around and she got caught off guard that might have yeah. worked better than this mm, yeah the money I, I'm not really bothered about that because I can just believe that she stealthily nicked it from somewhere. Like, that's... I've got no problem with that, but... Mm. Or maybe she already had it or, you know, she's picked it up somewhere. But it's just the... The way that they then arrange the actual attack scene where they, like, do it as a sudden surprise and it's like, oh, the, the wave is there. Oh, no. And then... She gets stabbed a couple of times and then falls into the water. And then the waif doesn't think to just check that... Like, just just, um, just wait to see if Aya's dead body shows up or something. But the waif just seems yeah. to think, right, my job's done. I'm just going to wander off. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that we basically get a repeat of this before the end of the season, if you know what I mean. Like, oh God. Aya okay. and the Waif are going to have to come face-to-face again, you, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And so it just feels like we've gone around in a circle and have, and you know that Aya's not going to wind up dead. No, and so of course not. It just... I don't know. Eventually, I think that there is a bit of a payoff for this, but, like, it, it's just something I'm going to have to just sort of mentioned to you when it comes up and they could have gone about it another way anyway but yeah it I don't I'm not keen on where Arya's storyline really goes from here in season six okay like I think it might be among my least favorite bits of the show and it kind of starts in this scene really okay um this is yeah, I'm not keen on this bit of the episode. I'm not keen on this bit of Aya's storyline either. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We won't, I mean, the, the 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 title of next week's episode is a big clue, I think, as to what happens. But um, well, so when we when we reveal that at the end of this episode, uh, or if you want to just quickly Google it now, um, then yeah, that's you know that that'll probably give away what's probably going to happen next week, but. Yeah, um, I'm kind of looking forward to talking about it, but I'm also kind of not, so, you know. I was just going to say, you, we did have that private discussion where you mentioned that um, George R. R. Martin had written, um, the last thing he'd written about Arya was her going blind, right? Yeah. So it's like um, Benioff and Vice have been sort of painted, in, well, like forced into this situation where they've got to work around this, make her unblind because how do you manage that on television for two more series with a main character who was previously not blind yeah and yeah it's uh, I, I don't know I can't think of a I can't think of a 
better way to close this it feels satisfying but it is just the result of that of how yeah. things how complicated things got with the house of black and white yeah i think it did get a bit too complicated and then just at the point where you were like okay yeah cool just need a little bit of guidance through this next phase no and nope. I think they've done a really good job this season with Aya's storyline up to this point. And then I struggle. Yeah, I agree. I do struggle with this scene and with future stuff. But yeah, we'll, we'll, shame, we'll get really. to the Riverlands anyway. We'll, we'll go We'll go there. <laughs> yeah, let's go. I think some of the men are a bit afraid of you. I'm used to it. When I found you, I thought you'd been dead for days. Well, you were stinking already and you had bugs all over you and bone was coming through right there. I was going to give you a proper burial and then you coughed. <laughs> Nearly shit myself. I reckoned you were going to die by the time I loaded you on the wagon, but you didn't. Now, I reckon you'd die a dozen more times over the next few days, but you didn't. What kept you going? Eight. In a cold open in the Riverlands, Sandor Clegane is revealed to have survived his wounds from his yes! fight with Brienne of Tarth in the season four finale, and he is now living with a small religious community in the countryside, assisting them with building their own sept. And Brother Ray, who is played by Ian McShane, he of the Tits and Dragons quote, talks with Sandor and recounts how he discovered him and ultimately saved his life. And Sansor, Sandor insists that it was hate that kept him going. Later, three men from the Brotherhood Without Banners arrive and attempt to extort the villagers, but leave when they discover that the people have no possessions. Sandor warns Ray that the men will return, but Ray kind of dismisses his concerns. While chopping wood nearby, Sandor hears screams from deeper in the valley and returns to the set to find the villagers slaughtered and Ray hanged. And enraged, he picks up an axe and marches away. Ooh, the hound is back. He is. Yeah. yeah. Um, in pog form. In pog form. Great call open. My favourite one of the show. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, how did you feel when he came back? Um, surprisingly, I didn't expect it. But also, there was that... I mean, there was the point in... Right. Because I read the Wikipedia articles before I do the write-ups, you know? And, yeah. uh, and there was that... They do that thing in the opening paragraph when they say, this is the final appearance of such and such. Now, in that final episode of season four, he wasn't listed, but I just assume <laughs> that... I, I assume because it's Arya and because she's in the house of black and white, surely like he's going to appear in a vision or something. Or maybe it's something to do with Bran. Who knows? Um... But yeah, it was a genuine surprise. It was a very welcome surprise. And I kind of, I did love that they just, they did that in the cold open and you only had the opening credits to drink in the fact that he's not only alive, but he seems to have found a sense of purpose. Yeah. It's like, well, here's the rest of the show. How you deal with that? That that could be, you know, a big cliffhanger ending. It's like, fucking hell, the hound's back. Now what? But yeah. they, they choose to do it as the opening because obviously you've got a lot to deal with. You've got a lot of ground to cover. And this opening scene is, it's, I mean, it's kind of beautiful in a way. It's like, how often do you get that exquisite pastoral slice of the countryside in this show? That's not or even damaged or something, yeah. Yeah, or like even any sense of a living, breathing community. We've talked before on the podcast about how so many of these places in the Riverlands were just left behind by previous wars. You know, the War of mm. the Five Kings especially. It was like more of a passage than something to be fought over, but it still suffered its share of destruction as a result. And, yeah, just... The, the way this is portrayed, it's so like vibrant and colourful and it's like nothing else in the show. It's like a different world entirely. Like I like I mentioned with um you know with Jamie and the Blackfish before how it looks so miserable and tired and battered and like nothing could ever grow there again. Whereas you've got these beautiful pastures new that the hound has found himself in. It's amazing. 
Yeah, um, I just think that I love watching people's reaction to that opening. I don't often go in for like, oh, I love watching reaction channels because yeah, yeah. there's only so much enjoyment I think you can get out of watching people yell at a TV screen. But well, this one yeah. is one I quite enjoy watching because of the way that they do the reveal and like the slow panning shot upwards where you go, like you get the slow, the little clue that he's limping and he's holding the whole thing by himself and the music cues changes ever so slightly when you see him fade into shot and then it the way it builds very, very slowly into the the main theme and the way the music bleeds out from the opening from the cold open into the into the main credits itself and then you're like oh yeah because like the hound was a great character and yeah he was. Think, well he is he's yeah, back he's yeah, still I, here yeah i missed you know I, I do miss him in the points where he's absent um but this is the version of the hound that i recognize the most where okay. the eyes are just a little bit sadder Mm. And he's a little bit more tired and his mission is defined now and it's a bit more singular and it's not so... His intentions aren't so scattered and they aren't so fractured. It's like, it's clear what his mission is now. It's clear why he's still around. He alludes Mm. to it in this episode, which is that, like, there's something that's been burning inside him the whole time and now he's going to try to try to fulfill it i will say that this is another example of season six yeah taking a kind of nascent theory from the books and then just saying no fine okay yeah it's not even a theory like it removes all element of mystery and just says it as it is it simplifies it like we did this with benjen where it was like is the character cold hands from the book uncle benjen Mm -hmm. and the show was like yes he is and um with the hound um I forget which character it is that comes across uh, comes across a a septon who works in the countryside or something like that. And there's a grave digger character, and people thought that the grave digger was the hound, um, right? And so the books, well, the, the so the books are sort of like, is it? Is it not? Who knows? Whereas the show's just like, yeah. It's the hound. <laughs> the hound's not dead. Whee! And so it's, they have license it, to do this now. Yeah, of course. I was going to say, it's the sort of thing that becomes a bit tiresome if you do it on TV. Is it or isn't it? It's like... Yeah, you can't do it on TV. Man. Come on. Yeah. But yeah, I just think that this is my favourite section of the episode. Um, I think that it's a storyline about the hound not quite getting over the hate and revenge that still drive him. And he's still pursuing yeah. it. And as and again, he's another one. He's like, again, Brother Ray is like at the center of this as someone who was at war years ago, but grew tired and broken and disillusioned. And so moved away and tried to heal and tried to do something better and tried to do something different and tried to make a change. And he died. Mm. And he, because his nature in the end is what ends up with him being killed. Whereas the hound is sort of looking at it like I'm tired of war and I broke his moment. He broke on the battlefield in Blackwater, but he's killed people since. And he's just kind of been slogging his way through a ruined countryside. And you think, Oh, maybe he's finally changed his ways. Maybe, you know, he's exercising his demons by swinging at a tree trunk and helping the villagers build a sept and all of this. And you think, Oh, but then his dialogue reveals quite a lot about where he still is psychologically, where he doesn't keep going because he wants to keep living. He keeps going mm. because hate makes him and revenge. Yeah. And, and yeah. at the end he's like, well, it's a dog eat dog world and I want to be the bigger dog. And I think he has an understanding of the world still that maybe brother Ray had perhaps forgotten. I don't know. I don't think it passes a judgment to say that the Hound or Brother Ray were wrong or right. I think they're both right and they're both wrong. Like there's that line. Where yeah, I agree. Yeah. You don't. What is it? You don't cure a disease by spreading it to more people, and you don't cure it by dying either. Mm, and it's, it's like, true. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 yeah. Both arguments are completely valid, and yeah. that's the episode's central philosophy. I think whether you know it, when you're broken, do you keep going or do you? snap you know and it, it, or is there a third option which is just to walk away 
sometimes. Like maybe is there just is that third option the one that's always there but the characters never take? And so Brother Ray chooses option A and dies. The Hound chooses option B and just wanders off into the countryside to as of now it's an unknown fate, but we, we don't know that for sure. We we don't no, know where he's going and we don't know where his path ends. It's just an open question. And I yeah, I find a lot of meaning in this and it takes place in a really gorgeous location. And Ian McShane is another one of the show's great one and done kind of character appearances where I think he brings a lot of I mean, there's no flies on him and there's no bullshit, but there's a lot of darkness and sadness to him as well. In the same way that it is with Sandal again. I think they're great foils for each other. Um Ian McShane doesn't seem like he's a particularly big fan of Game of Thrones, but he came in, did the work very well, and did it very professionally and left. So, Absolutely, fair play to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, did, he did it really well. Like, I I did find myself asking a fair few questions about, you know, him, but like with our chat about Succession, I think it's absolutely fine to leave these things to the imagination. It does take some skill you have to be able to give the audience an overall sense of someone's character while avoiding the sort of unnatural actions or conversations for the sake of exposition. And I think Ray is a prime example of how that should be done. You do get the sense that he's fostered this young, vibrant community, which feels more like an extended family with Ray as the sort of patriarch who's he's imposing but he's supportive and wise which in itself does raise some questions because you could make the case for this sounding like so many religious cults like even within the same show the high sparrow could fit that description but yeah you know by the end of it none of it matters because he's dead and sandor wants revenge Hmm. it's a great performance and I'm not sure it's all for nothing either, because I think this, no, like I say, this is a, this is a a, a new, uh, this is a the same old hound, but with a few new wrinkles. He has slightly yeah. sadder eyes, um, mm. and yeah, I think it's a a beautiful bit of the episode that ends in a a bit of a tragedy, really. Can um, I just say on the Brotherhood Without Banners? Um, I got really confused because the main one really looks like Euron. He really does, doesn't he? Yeah, that yeah. confused the hell out of me. I had to look that off. It's like, wait, you're on there already? Oh, yeah, wait. no. Um, it's uh, I forget the name of the the character. I think it's Lemon Cloak. Lem Lem Lemon Cloak is his name. Uh, member, right? Of, okay. Uh, member of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, God, the Hound in the vicinity of the Brotherhood Without Banners. It's like it's mm. season three all over again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lizzie, I want your line. It's a fairly long one, but it's one from the Blackfish, who says, As long as I'm standing, the war is not over. This is my home. I was born in this castle, and I'm ready to die in it. So you can either attack or try to starve us out. We have enough provisions for two years. Do you have two years, Kingslayer? Yeah, cool. That's a, a, that, that is a winner of a line. Um, mm-hmm. Who is your loser of the episode this week? Um, a bit of a dip. Well, I actually put unnamed brother without banners, but now you've told me his name. Lem Lemon Cloak. <laughs> yeah, him. Okay, Lem Lemon Cloak it is. Yeah. Um, we've heard your winning line. Who's your winning character? It was very nearly the Blackfish, but given that this is his only appearance, I'm going to give it to Ray. Cool. Yeah. All right then. Yeah, give him a give him a nice honor as a sort of, yeah. You, you, yeah. you can go and find his corpse swinging from that sept and put a medal <laughs> around his neck if you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, then we'll be back uh, this time next week. It's been wonderful to be back. Our episode next week is for season six, episode eight, entitled "No One." So I wonder who that's going to focus on, and I wonder mm. who's going to be the central central character in that one. Mm. We will see you for it. We will see yeah. you for it. See you then. See you soon, everyone. We are North Tour with a double-star man Going each and every castle for some fighting men To Bear Island, a deep good mart We are North Tour with a double-star man Going each and every castle for some fighting men Start a castle black and head to Winterfell 
I'm heading round the north to get my castle back The Boltons took it for their own a few years back They betrayed my brother and my mother too With some help from the Freys and the Lannister crew It's been so many years since the war was ended But I'm growing up and I'm done pretending Since I've been happy, yo, it's been a while So I'll negotiate with a ten year old child Lord Glover's here to say my house is dead But I'm here to tell him that he is pledged To House Dark in perpetuity Meaning with so many lords is kinda new to me I'm learning on the job while I'm still so young But there's a bastard in my house that needs to be hung I'm using all the lessons that I learned down south If we wanna get a home back it's got to be now My brother thinks we'll win if we rush it through I'm trying to slow him down and speak my truth I love him so much but I still don't trust him So I sent Brienne to where my great uncle's hustling The time has come to take revenge I don't plan on being no one's prisoner again I'm sending out a raven to ask for help It's my big homecoming, won't play by stealth We on an old tour with Alistair Men Go with each and every castle for some fighting men To Bear Island, a deep wood mart We on an old tour with Alistair Men Go with each and every castle for some fighting men Start a castle black and head to Winterfell